everybody, and welcome back to the show. You guys, you're listening to Season 2. This is Episode 6, and this is Part 4 of the series that we've been doing about Josephus and the four canonical Gospels. So this is the history of religions and their gods, and I am your host, the skeptical ghost heathen, and I am an ancient history enthusiast as well as a hobbyist of ancient religions and, of course, their origins. So today is April 7th, 2021, and this episode is entitled Josephus and the Jewish Wars Part 4. What a surprise, right? But we're getting through it. I think we only have one more to do to bring this thing to a close. But in this episode, we're going to continue on through taking a look at the parallels that were written between the works of Josephus and the Jewish wars and his histories, and how they overlap over the canonized Gospels, that of Mark, Matthew, Luke, and John. And we're going to dig deep into the most popular and most interesting New Testament narratives and examine those verses in great detail and to see how they were borrowed in the particular context that Josephus meant them and how the Gospels may have meant them. And were there any underlining or are there any secret messages that these Gospels were trying to share? And if so, what were they? So thank you for listening and please share with a friend if you think that they would enjoy this show as well and help spread the love. But if you give me an hour, I will give you the history of the world and so much more. So if you are ready, without further ado, let's rock this thing. Picking up where we left off in the last episode, we're going to continue to examine very closely the works of Josephus and his Wars of the Jews and the four canonical Gospels that borrowed many themes to fulfill storylines for their Jesus, in the New Testament, of course. So, there are other parallels that are also pretty interesting, as well, that involve the Apostle Simon that relate to the Jewish rebel Simon according to the Wars of the Jews. Now, the storyline in the New Testament that describes Simon's three denials of Jesus. In fact, in just doing a quick scan of the wars of the Jews where Simon's denials would have happened were all immediately following the capture on Mount of Olives, reveals to us a passage in which Titus states the three times that he tried to urge Simon, the rebel leader, to accept a peaceful surrender, and three times Simon denied him the question. So now you have the biblical Simon denying Jesus three times and the real-life Simon denying Titus three times, all parallel satirical narratives. At this point, no scholar is sure if the author of the Gospels were trying to secretly portray Titus as Jesus for some hidden agenda or joke, or was Titus just used as a typology for Jesus? So either way, Everything that Jesus said and everything that he did was borrowed from the start to finish or simply made up by the author. So let's go ahead and take a look at this passage that I'm referring to that's in the Wars of the Jews. Okay, so I'm going to begin quote. The bridge that lay between the tyrants and Caesar parted them, while the multitude of many stood on each side those of the Jewish nation about John and Simon with great hopes of pardon for each, and the Romans about Caesar in great expression how Titus would receive their supplication. So Titus said, I beg you to stop doing what you were doing before I began this war, and after every victory I persuaded you to peace. I will not imitate your madness. 
If you throw down your arms and deliver up your bodies to me, I will grant you your lives, and I will act like a mild master of a family. What cannot be healed shall be punished, and the rest I will preserve for my own use. To suffer this of Titus, they made this reply. They refused to accept of it and denied Titus. And then end quote on that. Now, in the New Testament, the authors have their Simon deny Jesus three times that he is a follower. He then returns to his right mind and then feels remorse. This is most certainly a satiric depiction of the real-life Simon's three refusals to surrender. Then his, as Josephus tells us, became sensible once he was captured by the Romans. Now, if you recall, in the Christian tradition, Simon the Apostle suffers a martyr's death at Rome. In fact, his execution in the manner and the approximate year that the Christian tradition maintains is also similarly described in the words of the Jews as well. But Josephus does not speak about a Christian martyr, but a Jewish rebel. Now, the traditional time span that Christians want to place their Simon's death is between July of 64 of the Common Era, which is the purported date of the Neurorian persecution, and 68. Now, the real-life Simon was martyred in 70 and perhaps even 71 by Titus, but not that of Nero. However, both Simons can be seen as the cornerstone of the church that replaces the one that is destroyed, as we talked about in the past episode. As a side note, both Simons are recorded as having a relationship with the Flavian family. In fact, St. Jerome and Tertullian both refer to the tradition that Simon ordained Clement, the once again purported Flavian Pope, which we don't believe ever happened. This tradition that the early church scholars referred to is actually extremely significant in that it not only links the Flavians to the origins of Christianity, but if correct, it creates a huge challenge for the religion. Why? Because if in fact Simon did ordain Clement, then it would suggest that he in fact was not martyred by Nero, but by Titus. However, it's very hard to imagine that Simon would have simply handed over control of his movement to someone who was going to have him executed. So here's the problem with this. If the rebel Simon and the gospel Simon were in fact the same individual, then his being martyred by Titus and handing over the religion seems quite understandable. But the tradition that Simon ordained a Flavian as Pope and then was executed by the same family rejects that truth. The Flavians executed Simon and then passed control over his messianic cult, which would become later Christianity, to the royal family. This is the hypothesis, of course. But most believe that Christian scholars attempting to organize the history of the religion reorganize that such a different connection that the Flavian family was problematic for them. Therefore, they simply inserted popes between Simon and Clement. And this ultimately led to the two lists of popes, the one that the church officially claims and the one that the Tertullian and the Jerome claim in the second century, which had the succession go directly from Simon to a member of the Flavian family. Now, what we can conclude and take away from this is that the creators of the official Roman Church of Christianity had literally used the Sicarii, or the Jewish rebellion leaders, as the rock 
upon which they had built the church that would ultimately worship their pacifistic, peace-bringing, tax-paying Messiah. So by appropriating the real Simon's name as well as the position of authority, they were able to graft the Apostle Simon into history of Christianity. Now, understanding that the real Simon's history was absorbed by Roman Christianity, it's very important in that it explains the purported persecution of Christians, such as that during the Neronian persecution of Christians. But the Romans did not so much help invent a new religion. They simply transformed an existing one that Peter and Paul had already created in the 50s. That was one of a celestial Jesus, not a historical Jesus. That's going to be important to remember. So, therefore, that idea that the Romans were torturing Christians is somewhat correct, but these were Messianic Jews, like the real Simon was, who led a Jewish revolt against the Romans. Interesting, right? Look at it that way. There was never, never torturing and persecution of Christians. It was only against these Messianic Jews that were causing and wreaking havoc throughout Rome and obviously throughout Jerusalem. Now, many scholars also commented on the dubiousness of Mary, um, Mary, the you know, mother of Jesus, and having a sister also named Mary. And matter of fact, we're going to take a look at a um, Christian scholar here. His name is Eisenman, who wrote the following passage. And I begin, quote, Mary did not have a sister named Mary. This confusion was based on either separate and conflicting descriptions of Mary before the redaction of the traditions, or more than likely, a mistranslation error in Greek. So, Eisman is therefore pretty much correct in stating that Mary did not, in fact, have a sister with the same name, but there is actually a far better explanation for having several Marys that are listed in the New Testament, such as Mary, the mother of Jesus, the obvious one, and now it's a great one for starters, but then the Mary Magdalene, the, the, the hooker or the prostitute, Mary, the sister of the invented character Lazarus, who is actually a spoof on the real person Josephus refers to as Eleazar. Then we have Mary of, of Cleophas, the mother of James the Less. Then we also have Mary, the mother of John Mark, who is supposed, who is the supposed sister of uh, Barnabas. And last but not least, we have a Martha, who is also the sister of Lazarus and is included in the list because Martha is the Aramaic approximation of the Hebrew name for Mary. Either way, both names stem from the word rebellion. Okay. The name Mary is a Hebrew word for rebellion. Now, let that sink in a little bit. I think that's cool. They're so smart. But Martha is Aramaic for she is rebellious, and Mary is their rebellion in Hebrew. Now, this is all pretty interesting, isn't it? Especially considering everything that we just talked about with using a play on names, meanings, and hidden agendas. What do you do with that? All the Marys in the New Testament, together with the real-life Mary that Josephus tells about in the Wars of the Jews, the mother who ate her son's own flesh for salvation, are all part of a satirical theme, like what we saw with the Simons and Johns. So, given that the name Mary stems from a word, rebellion, we now can see that these women in the New Testament weren't actually historical people at all, rather just an archetype. 
In other words, all the female members of the militant messianic movement, the Sakari, would have been known and referred to as Marys to the Romans, or anyone else living in the Roman provinces within the empire, because they were all rebellious towards them. This little piece of information is important in understanding Mary Magdalene's key role as a character working in the New Testament satire on the resurrection of Jesus. So now it's really interesting that the Mary in the Wars of the Jews that would have such an important connection with the New Testament writers were all females and are also named Mary, which all have the name associated to a rebellion. Now, historians think that during the Jewish-Roman War, the name Mary became a nickname for Jewish female fighters in the same way that American soldiers had names for their enemies, such as Five O'Clock Charlie or Krauts, you know, during the German Wars. But the authors of the New Testament obviously wanted to make a connection that all of the women who followed these, this Messiah were rebels. But either way, it's clear that guys like Josephus and the author for Mark, and maybe even perhaps Matthew, got to perhaps enjoy that the followers of the Messiah that they wrote about, whose name was Mary, were rebellious females. Was it funny? I don't know. Was it intentional? Probably. But now imagine someone who is educated and living within the imperial court who reads about a savior who told his follow followers to follow me and become fishers of men on the beach at Gennesareth and who describes his flesh as living bread and, you know, at Jerusalem and having both his mother and every other female in his entourage also named Mary. They would be rolling on the floor laughing at the parody or perhaps the dark, humorous comedy only meant for those who were educated enough to read the histories of Josephus about the war that took place between the Romans and the Jews and also had read at least Mark and perhaps Matthew. But it's more than likely they would pick up on the joke. However, this demonstrates exactly who the church was going after for their particular congregation. Probably someone who hadn't read the Wars of the Jews. Furthermore, because we know that the rebel leaders were transformed into the Christian apostles, clarify the intent that Mark had for his gospel. I think that this author for Mark didn't just want to merely stop and destroy the militant group of Messianic Judaism that started the rebel movement among like-minded Jews, but to rewrite history in such a way as to destroy Judaism and every Jew entirely for centuries to come. Now, that's something. So how, how did we even get here? There's a passage in Matthew in chapter 11, 27 that says, in quote, All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one fully knows the Son except for the Father. Not does anyone fully know the Father except for the Son, and all to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And that quotation. So again, just want to point out that it just seems a little odd that Matthew has this Jesus refer to himself again as the third person, as Mark does. So, but Jesus' doomsday prophecies were all directed against that wicked generation of Jews who rebelled against Rome. Therefore, his threatened second coming was predicted in the 70 CE destruction that took place in Jerusalem, including the temple that was Remember, it was controlled by the corrupted Sadducee cult and its priests. 
This indeed was the understanding of most Christian theologians until this century, and is still the way that many Christians understand these prophecies. In fact, the 17th century theologian Reland saw that Romans' assault on Jerusalem in this way, that he would write, in quotation, The Son of God came now to take vengeance on the sins of the Jewish nation. And Redland's contemporary, William Winston, was even more specific than that. He actually understood that Jesus' words indicated, in quotation, that he would come at the head of the Roman army for their destruction. Now, some scholars are actually in total agreement with these guys and believe that Jesus' entire ministry was about the coming war with Rome and was designed to establish Jesus as Titus's forerunner, as a matter of fact. And if this is, in fact, true at all, then that would make the relationship between Jesus and the Father, which is referenced throughout the Gospels as a forerunner of the relationship between Titus and his father, the emperor and deitized as God, Vespasian. Now, we can see that all of the dialogues that describe Jesus' relationship with the Father all use comic wordplay that actually describes what would appear to be actually Titus's relationship with his real father, Vespasian. And what supports this claim is the fact that all of Jesus' descriptions of his relationship with his father, God, mention that the father and son possess secret identities that are known only between the two of them. For example, as seen here in John. Begin quote. But the testimony which I have is greater than that of John, for the works which the Father has granted me to accomplish, these very works which I am doing bear me witness that the Father has sent me. And that is in John chapter 5, 36. And then here again in John 8, 18, yeah, it's just 18, he says this and begin quote, I bear witness to myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness to me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. But also in Matthew, Jesus speaks of a secret identity. Know only to him and his father. However, I'm guessing that only Mark and Matthew were in cahoots with this little secret, sharing as they wrote pretty close to Titus's campaign, whereas John simply redacted that theme and used it for his narrative more than likely, but Matthew tells us, and take a look at Matthew here in chapter 11, 25 to 27. And the quote begins, At that time, Jesus answered and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent, and had revealed them unto babes. End quote. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. All things are delivered unto me of my Father, and no man knoweth the Son, but the Father, neither knoweth any man the Father, save the Son, and he whomsoever the Son will reveal him. End quotations. So, these discussions take place within the context of a concealed identity, as you can see here. And in this, and in these instances, the questioners are trying to determine whether Jesus is claiming to be the Messiah or not. We really can't tell. But most biblical scholars suggest that the authors were trying to reveal that Jesus was a God, but not a God with a capital G.
So if these dialogues are actually a satiric way the authors want to describe Titus and his father, the god Vespasian, then this kind of all makes sense. So consider this passage from John 10, 29-38, and pay attention to the verbiage with what I just said about Titus and Vespasian, the god of Rome. And I begin the quote, My father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand, for I and the Father are one. The Jews took up stones against to stone him. Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? So then it goes on that the Jews answered him, answered Jesus, and this is what the Jews say, it is not for a good work that we stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. So now Jesus answered them with this. Is it not written in your law? I said, are you gods? If he called them gods to whom the word God came in scripture cannot be broken. So in quotation, do you not, do you say of him who the father consecrated and sent into the world? You are blaspheming because I said, I am the son of God. I am not doing the works of my father. Then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I am in the father. End quotation. I know that's a little tough to listen to on the ears, right? <laughs> but let's go on. So when Titus's father, Vespasian, died in 79, Titus succeeded him as emperor over all of Rome and all of his provinces, including Judea. Now, among his very first orders of business was to have his father deified as a Roman god. And it was no easy task at all. We talked about this before. As Vespasian was to be the first non-Julio-Claudian emperor to receive this kind of honor. But you can imagine that it was so important to Titus because Vespasian's deification would then break the chain of divine succession that was held by the Julio-Claudian line since Julius Caesar and thereby help secure an imperial future for the Flavian family and thus become a supreme god in his own right. So in light of this parallel campaign to Jesus's, as told in the New Testament a few years after the fact, Titus would have definitely been the Messiah, a Roman Messiah, and fulfilling the second coming that the Gospels prophesied about, as he in fact fulfilled all of the doomsday prophecies that Jesus talked about. Then the fact that he is a son of God, as well as ultimately becoming God himself, and his father um, Domitian actually deitized him. And we can see why scholars are making this connection now. Now, also, the histories of Josephus, which all prophesied that Vespasian would be the world ruler foreseen by Judaism's messianic prophecies, likewise provided support for Vespasian's deification. So, in the New Testament as well as the wars of the Jews, both make the case that the destruction of Judea was in fact an act of a god. Not just the god, but a god. And obviously Josephus knew who he was talking about, where the gospel writers, at least the first two, did. So it's important when we align the New Testament with the wars of the Jews, we begin to understand new things 
in a very clear picture. It begins to emerge to us, right? So let's recap this a little bit. Now, the Gospels will have their Jesus predict that a son of man would, in fact, encircle Jerusalem with a huge ass wall and then destroy its temple and bring tribulation upon the wicked generation that rebelled against Rome. In fact, one man actually had these precise characteristics, a man who was a son of a god and whose followers literally were fishers of men at Gennesareth. Also, this man encircled Jerusalem with a wall, a big-ass wall, no doubt, and then leveled the temple to the ground. Also, a man who brought tribulation that the Jesus had foreseen unto the wicked generation and ended his ministry with condemning Simon to death, but sparing John to life in prison. This man would clearly be Titus Flavius with all of these things considered so far that we have examined. Now, some scholars and authors, such as Joseph Atwill, who I've been picking apart for the last five weeks, actually propose that Titus invented Christianity along with the help from Josephus. But I am not at all in agreement with this. But what I am in agreement about is that a small but very significant and successful messianic group of pacifistic Jews used Titus and his campaign typologically while using some of the themes, you know, that condemned the Jews who were causing so much grief and saw what had played out in Jerusalem as well as the temple being demolished. They simply wanted to put an end to messianic rebels while having some dark comedic fun at their expense that only a few wealthy and educated readers would probably enjoy. And I'm also guessing that some of the leaders of this pacifistic messianic movement were also probably on the wealthy side, living within the, um, the, the interior palace, maybe. No, I don't believe that Mark and Matthew, Luke and John lived inside the imperial palace with the kings. I don't believe that at all. But I do believe that Mark and probably Matthew and perhaps the others were part of a, an elite movement of um, Ro Romano Jews that simply wanted to stop the war. They were a pacifistic group of Christians that were obviously probably part of the congregations of Peter and Paul within the 50s and perhaps in the 60s. And so maybe this even puts some age to these guys, right? If you think about it a little bit, if they're part of Paul's congregation in the 60s and then writing, you know, and maybe they're in like they're 20 years old. I'm guessing that these guys are probably in their 40s, maybe even their 50s when they wrote their particular gospels. And that would kind of make sense, especially when you consider the, um, the education that they had. But I will say there is some weight to what Atwell proposes as no one had more motivation than Titus for finding a cost-effective method for containing and controlling the radicalized militant Jews, which was costing the empire a shit ton of money at the time. And then there's this weird connection between early Christianity and the Flavian family. Even if one discounts the tradition that regards Flavius Clement as the first pope of Rome, as well as the other Flavian traditions that are connected to Christianity's origins. In the inscription of the Flavia Domitilia, as the founder of the oldest burial grounds for Christians in Rome that actually still exist today. You can go look it up for yourself. Flavia Domitilia, the founder of the oldest Christian burial site in Rome. It's important to take a look at it. 
Now, as you're probably all sitting in your cars there, scratching your heads, like, where in the hell is uh, James going with this, or skeptical heathen going with this? But there are many opinions about this subject, and it definitely makes people feel uneasy or perhaps even suspicious. But that's what it should make us. It should make us want to dig deeper and know more. But there's a lot of things that we have to consider here that we just covered in the last five weeks. We are just looking at the different ideas and what evidence we have at hand and don't have. So even with everything that we just talked about, the works of Josephus should be sufficient enough to confirm that the Gospels used his work for whether it was accidentally or intentionally to connect the Flavians to the origins of Christianity. You can't deny it. There's too many parallels there. With, in all very close within sequence and dating and timing and places, you name it, they used it. And whether the gospel writers accidentally or intentionally caused 2,000 years of anti-Semitic hatred towards Jews that eventually led to the murder of 6 million innocent Jewish men, women, and children, we will never know what their true intentions were other than to put a stop to radical Judaism and a century-long struggle for peace. However, in the fact alone that they used dark and sometimes horrific themes to paint a picture of rebellious Jews, I believe that their intentions were quite clear from the get-go. To not just stop them, but to end them entirely and wipe them off the face of the earth. But whoever these guys were, whose headquarters were in Rome versus Jerusalem, were committed to the Flavians and as even Josephus was an adopted family member to the Flavian family, and he even lived within the palace for a little while. They all saw militant messianic Judaism as a threat to their financial interest. That's important. And that tells us a little bit more about Mark and Matthew, right? And even felt a need to work with the leaders of the religion to construct a new version of Judaism that would be in complete alignment with Rome and a new Christianity that even different from what different from what the Apostle Paul and Peter were teaching as they set up their churches and congregations. But neither of them lived to see the fall of the temple or the war and didn't need to have a Jesus that was, wasn't only available and speaking cosmically through visions and hallucinations. Remember, that is the exchange. That is, that is the big change. Because from 50 to 60, Paul, Peter, and James set up congregations. They were a small sectarian group of Messianic Jews that saw Jesus only in visions, as we talked about, right? It wasn't until this, after the fall of Jerusalem and after the fall of the temple, some 77, 78, 79, right around there, after the works of Josephus are released, do we see the book of Mark appear. And it has Jesus on earth with the stories that we have just been going through and reviewing together. So it's really important that you see that transition and that this group of sectarian Jews that were a historicizing sect, it's really important to see what their mission was here. What were they trying to accomplish? That's exactly what we're trying to get to. And then one of the primary reasons or causes for the war between the Romans and the Jews, other than the occupation in Judea and controlling their temple, of course, 
was that the Jews refused to worship the Roman emperors as gods, or any of the Roman gods of the pantheon for that matter, even though the rest of the empire did and had no problem with it. The Jews absolutely refused to call Caesar Lord. I think one of the cruelest jokes and deceptions of Christianity, at least this Roman Christianity, is that by replacing the Jewish God and his son, Jesus, with Roman emperors, Vespasian and Titus. Actually, at some level, it tricked the Jews into calling Caesar Lord after all, and without even knowing it. One could even argue that Christianity stole the identities of the God of Judaism and his Messiah's son as well as those of John and Simon from the actual rebellion, with the air quotes, their identities were ultimately given to Vespasian and his son Titus, and to the Christian apostles John and Simon. These disguised characters were combined with other symbols of Roman con conquests. The cross of the crucifixion, which was only a Roman practice for Romans, not Jews and the flesh of the Messiah to create a religion that absorbed, as well as ridiculed, the Messianic movement. Now, some scholars actually suspect that Christianity, as the parodic version of the imperial cult, was probably first inserted into the area that was surrounding Judea to serve as a theological barrier to the spread of militaristic Judaism. The religion flourished over time, and by the 4th century, Flavius Constantine saw a larger potential and opportunity for the cult and decreed it as the state's religion. The religion then became a prophylactic, if you would, for all the potentially rebellious slave populations throughout the empire. It was about suppression and exploitation. Suppression and exploitation. I can't say that enough times. And to make this new prophylactic cult, I'm going to call it that, as effective as possible in promoting their interest, its inventors had their satiric messiah advocate both pacifism and stoicism, whereby Christians would learn to subdue their rebelliousness and find instead holiness and subservience. Remember, forgive and forget, turn the other cheek, pay your taxes. All right, you get it. With this combination of Christian theology and Rome's imperial strength was so effective that it kept European civilizations frozen in time for over a thousand years, at least all through the Dark Ages. There was also a Roman bureaucracy that was called the Commune Asia, which was an organization that administered the imperial cult of the Flavians in Asia that probably would have overseen the original implementation of the Christian cult. Notably, all of the seven churches of Asia that are also mentioned in the book of Revelation, um, chapter 11, which is the first chapter, verse 11, and those churches were known to have agencies of the commune located with inside them. That places the Flavian imperial cult directly into a relationship with Christianity at its earliest times. Even five of these cities were cities of the imperial cult's festival that took place once every five years. And in these cities, it would have been possible to oversee the two versions of the imperial cult. The one for the Roman citizens, and the other one for the slaves, and perhaps the uneducated. Furthermore, we have to ask, what happened to all those priests who no longer worked at the Jerusalem temple after its destruction? Some believe that these 
wicked priests accepted money to build new congregations for the new version of Judaism. There were in fact an estimated 18,000 that survived the attack by the Romans and would now be seeking new employment, I suppose. So with that said, it is very possible that the very first Christian priest in Roman provinces, including Asia Minor, now modern-day Turkey, were hired to teach and preach this version of Christianity, one that differed immensely from what Paul's congregations were teaching, of a cosmic Christ who died for the sins of Israel, as interpreted from Messianic scripture. However, these facts may be the Roman version of Judaism was introduced to the masses of ignorant peasants by some group of wicked priests who had been employed by the Roman government to preach the Gospels, which is a word that excuse me, technically means the good news of a military victory. The authors of the four canonized Gospels, they all constructed their Jesuses from the lives of several different prophets found in Jewish canon. For example, since Elijah and Elisha had raised children from the dead, so did Jesus. In fact, whenever possible, Jesus' miracles would also have to be just a little bit better than the ones that they were borrowed from. And we can see this where Elisha fed a hundred men with twenty loaves of bread and still had bread to spare. So, of course, Jesus would feed five thousand men with only five loaves and two fishes and still had twelve baskets full of bread to spare. So, since Jesus was to be the prophet who was envisioned by Daniel, then Jesus' life would also have to include certain episodes that would fulfill Daniel's prophecy. Remember, we talked about Daniel before. Even though we know that most Messianic Jews were writing in the time of the recent circumstances during the Antiochian period. However, many of the extraordinary accomplishments of Jesus' ministry were taken from the lives of prior prophets. The character that he was primarily based upon was that of Moses, of course. We talked about that. From the jump, the author for Mark uses Moses as the basic prototype for his Jesus. If you could understand that, right? We talked about it a little bit. We touched on it. Because he had been the founder of the religion that Christianity would soon come to replace. And it needed to feel comfortable. And, of course, say the word, familiar to transitioning Jews. And Christianity did the same thing for pagans by transitioning their pagan holidays and pagan festivals to Christianity such as Christmas and Easter, of course. It was comfortable and it was familiar. So basically, the founder of the new religion, being that of Jesus, of course, that would replace Judaism, or at least the extreme rebellious Judaism, would have to be seen as the new Moses for familiarity, right, and for comfort. The new founder that would replace the old founder, or even more like, the new Israel that would replace the old Israel. And this theory is widely accepted throughout scholarship where believers chalk it up to, that's how God planned it. But remember, the new Israel, the Israel of pacifism, replacing the Israel that was of the wicked generation. 
The fact that Jesus was based on Moses as the prototype is actually very easy and obvious to demonstrate. Because the author of the Gospels went as well out of their way to make sure that the Jewish converts understood this. Same as the pagan Gentiles with their ceremonies and the patron saints such as the goddess Ishtar from Mainana to become Easter and the beginnings of spring and rebirth. Here's an example. Although the author for Mark doesn't feel that a childhood story isn't important to be included in his narrative, the author for Matthew, however, decides that it is and goes ahead and bases his Jesus's childhood on Moses's. In fact, the outline is the same in both cases. Their birth causes major distress on a ruler, Pharaoh for Moses and Herod for Jesus, of course. Then a, then, then a consultation with wise men and then a massacre of children, a miraculous rescue with Egypt as the land of rescue. And in addition to creating these parallels between the lives of the founders of the two religions, the authors for the Gospels also borrowed many events from the story of Exodus to create the impression that Christianity, just like Judaism, was of divine origin. The best known of these are the parallels that the Gospels use to set up Jesus as the new Passover lamb, establishing him as the deliverer of the new religion that was coming to replace Judaism, the old Israel, the Israel that was full of sin. All four of the Gospels show, as did Paul, that the Passover and Judaism itself are now obsolete. Although Paul imagines his replacement only happening celestially, and the cosmos, and a place between heaven and hell. Now, Jesus' sacrifice, according to this humanizing sect, made Jesus' sacrifice of himself as being the new Passover, the Passover celebration, the event, and the new sacrificial lamb. Only through Jesus, you only had to follow him and worship him versus the annual slaughter of beasts. That was done in the old temple in the old Israel. It is important to recognize how literally early Christianity saw itself as being a replacement for Judaism, even to the extent that the early church fathers claimed that the ancient Hebrews were Christians and not Jews. Eusebius, who writes around 314 AD, says, I begin the quote, that the Hebrew nation is not new, but is universally honored on account of its antiquity. It is known to all. The books and writings of people contain accounts of ancient men, rare indeed and few in number, but nevertheless distinguished for piety and righteousness and every other virtue. Of these, some excellent men lived before the flood. Others of the sons and descendants of Noah lived after it. Among them, Abraham, whom the Hebrews celebrate as their own founder and forefather. If anyone should assert that those who have enjoyed the testimony of righteousness from Abraham, himself back to the first man, were Christians, in fact, if not in name, he would not go beyond the truth. End quote. Now, Jesus introduces the idea in John chapter 6, 49-52, that the idea that Christianity will replace Judaism by stating that his living flesh would be replaced for the manna, the Israelites were given by God during their wandering in the wilderness. So the author for John basically writes this, and I'll be going to quote. 
Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are now dead. This is living bread which comes down from heaven, that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is of my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. End quote. Now, to demonstrate that Christianity's divine origin parallels Judaism's, the authors of the Christianity took the events from the story of the original Exodus that had numbers associated with them and then inserted those numbers into the story of the birth of Christianity. So in other words, since God gave the laws of Moses 50 days after the first Passover, Christianity would give the new laws 50 days after its Passover, being the crucifixion of Jesus. Interesting? Yes. Here's another example. On the day that the laws of Moses was given, 3,000 people died for worshiping the golden calf. Remember that? And on the day the Spirit was given to the disciples of Christ, 3,000 people were added into Christ and received life. Thus, the Gospels wanted to signify that the new improved covenant with God, Jesus brought life versus death in the old tradition under the old Moses or under the old Israel. So, these ever so obvious use of the parallels were created to establish Christianity as the brand new version of Judaism that every Jew and Gentile needs to get on board with ASAP as soon as possible or else, right? The Gospels and the works of Josephus together justify this. The New Testament records the birth of the new Judaism, while the history of Josephus records the death of a second temple Judaism. So all of the parallels that we just discussed between Christianity and Judaism and Jesus and Moses are all well known and have been for over a century or more. This is not new information. In addition, the authors of the Gospels also established something else that is so far not totally well known across all of academia. But by mirroring the sequences found in the Exodus story, and by establishing Jesus' crucifixion as the new and improved Passover, they were able to establish a continuum, one that mirrored a story, one that mirrored the story about the Israelites leaving Egypt and even wandering until they were permitted to enter the Promised Land 40 years after the first Passover. As with the time sequence for the fulfillment of the prophecies of Daniel, once the continuum of the new exodus had begun, there could be no stopping until all had come to pass. But what is the conclusion to the 40 years of wandering in the New Testament? Especially since all the Gospels end with their stories shortly after Jesus' death, right? So where is the conclusion to Christianity's 40-year exodus recorded? The answer was actually just waiting to be found in Josephus' Wars of the Jews. To conclude Christianity's 40-year cycle, or Jewish generation, the author for Mark links the date of Jesus' crucifixion to the date Josephus established for the destruction of the Judean fortress at Mazada. In 73, remember, Josephus records that the year of the stronghold was destroyed was 73 of the common era. So even some archaeologists say that it was 74, but that's probably incorrect. It's evident to see how, how and why Mark placed the beginning of Jesus' ministry 
in the year of 33 to build and fulfill the 40 years of wandering narrative, creating parallels to everything that happened to Moses while wandering up to the fulfillment prophecies for Jesus and his becoming the new sacrificial lamb and the beginning of a new covenant with God that is not, in fact, that of Judaism for the Jews. The authors of the New Testament, while using the histories found in the works of Josephus, were able to conveniently create a parallel between the first 40 years of Judaism, during which the Israelites wandered the wilderness, and the invented first 40 years of Christianity, from the time of Jesus' death until the Romans' completed conquering of Israel. These 40 years, which can be referred to as the wandering for Christianity, date from Christ's resurrection on the 15th of Nisan, 33 CE, until the Jewish rebellion, which is marked by the destruction of the Sakari, the movement that Christianity was created to replace on the 15th of Nisan in 73. Now, the 40-year parallel of wandering by the two different religions is, of course, a continuation of the parallels that we found between Moses and Jesus, right? Which were cleverly designed to create an impression that the origins of Christianity parallels with the divine origins of Judaism. And for the most part, it worked, right? The 40 years of wandering was actually inspired by the following passage from Joshua chapter 5, verse 6, which described what happened to the Israelites after the original Passover. Now, the passage makes it very clear that the logic that was behind the New Testament's author's decision to establish the precise 40-year interval between Jesus' death and the destruction of the Judean fortress at Mazda, you can see that they wanted to show not only that Christianity's origins paralleled with Judaism's which had proved that it had replaced Judaism's special relationship with God, but also that the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 had been divinely ordained because Jesus predicted it, right? So the men of war were consumed because they obeyed not the voice of the Lord. And that's a quotation, exactly as it happened after the original Passover in Jewish tradition. Now let's go ahead and read that passage in Joshua, okay? So begin quote, for the children of Israel walked forty years in the wilderness, till all the people that were men of war, which came out of Egypt, were consumed, because they obeyed not the voice of the Lord, and to whom the Lord sware that he would not shew them the land, which the Lord sware unto their fathers that he would give us a land that floweth with milk and honey. Now, what's important to understand here, an end quote, obviously. So what's important to understand here is that the 40 years is the traditional period of penance as understood by Israelites, as well as the length of a generation, a generation of people. It is also important to know that the early Hebrews were obsessed with eras and generations that they picked up from their Babylonian captives that used these themes for their zodiac calendar, as a matter of fact, for very mundane reasons. And, and the, the Babylonians mostly used for farming, agriculture, mundane stuff like that. In fact, they even picked up the seven-year cycle for harvesting and letting the land rest for these, from these influencing cultures. This tradition also stems, of course, from the 40 years of wandering. By giving Christianity a 40-year cycle, the pro-Roman Christian authors were proving that the conquest of Judea by the Romans was merely another case of God's work, God's wrath for the Jewish wickedness, 
as had been often recorded by the Jews own religious literature that was found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. So let's take a look in Judges 13, um, verse 1. And I'm going to begin a uh, just a short little paragraph here. And the children of Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord delivered them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. End quote. I think that it's really important to understand just how important this 40-year period after Jesus' death is for the theory of there being a single source for the New Testament and the works of Josephus. So, in the Gospel of John, for example, Jesus' ministry is described as having encompassed over three Passovers. These three Passovers are not, however, mentioned in the Synoptic Gospels, which would be Mark and Matthew and Luke, obviously. But John, who writes later into the 90s, consciously establishes the date of Christ's death as occurring in the year 33 of the Common Era. And what do we know happens in 33, right? He clearly does this because this is the only way possible, arithmetically, to create the correct alignment with the prophecies of Daniel, as well as to create a 40-year cycle between what? Jesus' resurrection and the end of the Jewish war. The New Testament writers deliberately configured their stories and dating to coincide with the events recorded by Josephus in the Wars of the Jews. And why? To demonstrate that the prophecies of Daniel would conclude in the year 70 with the destruction of Jerusalem. In other words, if Titus or even Domitian, his brother, brought Jerusalem to a low in the year 80, we would have received the same story about Jesus, but with a dating cycle that would start in the year 40 of the common era. Now, in order to prove that Rome had God's divine providence, the creators of this historical Jesus in Christianity provided the evidence that the 70 common era sacking of Jerusalem was in fact foreseen by that of Daniel. The evidence being found in the histories of Josephus. In this way, all the important dates of Jesus' life were back calculated to be in alignment with the destruction of Jerusalem. This is completely clear with regard to the beginning of his ministry and his resurrection. In fact, many scholars speculate that Jesus' birth was also established at exactly 70 years before the siege of Jerusalem. This is because it was meant to mimic the 70 years in the desolation of Jerusalem, as described in the book of Daniel, chapter 9, verse 2. And I will quote, in the first year of his reign, Daniel understood by books the number of years whereof the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet, that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolation of Jerusalem. And end quote. Now, as we discussed before under the episode All About Daniel, we already know that this author was referring to the Antiochian period during 164 BCE. Remember? So go back and listen to that episode if you want to remember what the 70 years was actually symbolizing. But the dates of Jesus' life were simply more pieces of Judaism chosen by the creator of this humanizing sect in order to meet its logical and theological requirements. The central events of Christianity, the birth of Christ, the beginning of his ministry, and his death are 1 of the Common Era to 30 CE and then 33 CE. All these dates were calculated backwards from the ending point being the destruction of Jerusalem. They were simply chosen to fit into a pattern that combined the prophecies of Daniel and the life of Moses. It's really as simple as that. In the beginning of Jesus' ministry in 30, 
in the year 30, was calculated to be exactly 40 years from the day that the Romans, under Titus, of course, pitched camp outside of Jerusalem. This dating system is not based upon the birth of a world historical religious leader, but rather the destruction of the city in which the religion is based upon. Now, we can see the theological chronology created by this historicizing sect ran a 40-year cycle between Jesus' resurrection and the fall of Mazda in 73. But while this 40-year cycle was in motion, the template that they used in Daniel actually ran concurrently with it. In fact, Christianity's version of the prophecies of Daniel was heading for its conclusion on the same day as its 40-year cycle of wandering. Now, I must say, one actually could admire the craftsmanship of the individuals who produced the works of the New Testament, though the method that they used the fusing of Daniel's prophecies with the 40-year Exodus narrative, was utterly preposterous from both a historical as well as a theological perspective. With it, they were able to neatly remove from history a religious movement that opposed them militarily and replaced it with one more aligned with their interests. And in doing so, they were able to conform history to theology to such an extent that one movement ended and another one came forth the very same day. Now, I personally think it's interesting that the inventors of this historicizing sect of Christianity, they did not pass along this theological fusion to the early church fathers. In fact, there is absolutely no evidence that any of these early church fathers, with the possible exception of Euspius, who writes in 325, the same era is uh, Constantine Flavius, but they understood that the destruction of Mazada represented the simultaneous conclusion of Christianity's 40-year wandering and the prophecies of Daniel. After that, the intellectuals who produced these works would not have their work appreciated for another 2,000 years, when scholars all around the world finally had access to ancient scripture and obviously the technology to be able to examine them. But this disconnect between the Gospels and its implementers, it's fascinating because it suggests that its first bishops did not need to understand a key element about Christianity. What is that key element? So that being, at what point did Christianity and its forefathers lose the memory of its Roman origins? The first church scholars lack awareness of this key element. It suggests that this disconnect may have occurred at a very early stage in the history of the religion, right? So when you think about it in a linear aspect, the earliest Christians in the 50s through the mid-70s only imagined a Christ, actually a Messiah that appeared to only a few in visions, dreams, or hallucinations. Congregations in and all around Rome were few and far in between. Maybe 15, maybe 15 congregations at the most by this time. But these congregations only knew of a Savior who died for their sins, was the Son of God, the Anointed One, who would suffer for their sins, but all taking place in outer space. During Paul's campaign, he never wrote letters to his congregants about a Jesus Christ who led a ministry through Galilee and Jerusalem only to be crucified by the Romans and, and, and at the demand of the Jews or a resurrection taking place on earth, seeing people, etc. And Paul's teaching, 
it was in a complete alignment with traditional Jewish belief of multiple planes above the earth and below heaven, where Satan would actually exist with his minions. This is where he imagined Christ being killed and rising again. It wasn't until after the Roman-Jewish War that this humanizing sect of Christians began creating a narrative that would take place on earth to fulfill Daniel's prophecy and to oppress the, and to oppress the Jews who started the war. So, most scholars agree that the book of Mark started being passed around to Paul's congregations probably a few years after the desolation at Mazada in 73, and of course the works of Josephus in 75. So Mark more than likely appears in the churches under the direction of Titus and his brother Domitian, probably right around 77, or perhaps even as late as 79, being, being followed by Matthew, of course. And uh, I'll call them the redactors, Matthew, who writes sometime in 80 maybe 85, Luke 85 through 90, and finally John sometime in the late 90s to the early 100s. Though this first 30 years of the religion, churches only had some letters from Paul and these four other books, and they were all independent. They weren't combined. They weren't combined for a very long time. Right now, they're basically just like loose leaf literature, if you would. All the letters from Paul, and then these basically these four pieces of literature during this particular time, early in, the, early in the movement. And there were many, many, many more from other Christian groups that were destroyed as they didn't align with what the Roman leaders wanted or perhaps needed. But the religion sputtered around for another two centuries, establishing itself where it could until it got its big break in the third century under Constantine Flavius, who made it Rome's state religion, along with all of its territories, and eventually all pagan religions would soon come to an end. But it's actually really interesting that there is a Christian scholar who clearly did not understand the New Testament's original intent, and that was Origen. Origen, who lived from 184 through 253 of the Common Era, and who is troubled by the name in the, um, in the New Testament, Jesus Barabbas. You remember who he was. He was the criminal who was set free during Jesus' crucifixion narrative. He picked up on the fact that the word Barabbas actually meant son of the father in Aramaic, meaning Jesus Christ and Jesus son of the father, was based on the um, scripture in Leviticus 16 narrative, and the two goats are the two sheep of equal status, one to be sent to slaughter for the sins of Israel, and the other, the criminal, being sent into the wilderness. So this fulfills the anti-Semitic storyline that the Jews chose to criminal over our Savior to wander while slaughtering Jesus. So I think this is a pretty good place to bring this episode to a close, um, you know, in this little mini-series as well, as we took a look at um, Josephus and his words of the Jews, his histories, and how they compared to what the gospel writers were writing, the canonized gospel writers were writing. And um, so I think we connected the dots, and I think we paid into a pretty clear picture, and you could do what you want with it. Um, I just simply laid out the evidence, what some scholars believe, um, you know, and this is not new. This has actually been around since around 1855 that um, many theologians have understood this particular idea. And um, but it's a hard battle. You know, it's a 30 billion dollar industry. And how do you fight it? And 
you know, once you're a believer, you know, you're going to always be a believer probably because of the Pascal's wager and, you know, whatever it might be. You know, people hold on to Christianity for certain reasons. But um, and this information could be all just coincidental, too. So I don't know. A lot of people don't want to look at this evidence or even know about it or aware of it. But I'm putting it out there. And again, there's this the evidence that we have and you can decide what to do with it. Um, so I thank you all for listening. And again, I hope that nobody is completely upset over this. This is about education and not necessary, you know, necessarily trying to hurt anyone's feelings or a particular group or attacking Christianity. But what it is doing is just taking a look at facts. And you can do whatever you want to do with those facts. Take them or you can leave them. I don't care. But I hope that you actually take the time to Take this information and do a little bit more research on your own. Don't just take what I say and, and take that as the absolute truth. Because in each and every one of these episodes that we've looked at so far, you could do years worth of study underneath each episode. So I'm painting each one with a big broad brush. But that underneath each episode, there's a hundred other little stories and details that you could really drill down and look into right? Like, for instance, with the Second Temple Judaism prior to the first year of the Common Era, there's a lot of great history that's going on in there and where it's murder and conspiracy and all the key characters that played a role in it. It's really, really interesting. There's so much more that we can go back and examine. But this particular series that we just looked at with paying attention to the Gospels and the underlying message that they were trying to portray, Again, that's what this key message is all about and what needs to be examined deeper. So I thank you all for listening. Please share along with anybody you think that might enjoy this as well. And everybody, no matter what you get from this, just be good humans. All right, everybody have a fantastic weekend. It's Friday and man, I'm looking forward to this weekend. It is beautiful here in Southern California. Love you all. Take care, everyone.